Hello, and welcome back to Chitheads. You might be wondering whose voice you're listening to. I'm Khalid, one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy, and I will be opening up the Chitheads episodes moving forward. Today, Jacob interviews Rabbi Rami Shapiro, an award-winning author of over 36 books on religion and spirituality. Rami co-directs the One River Foundation, is a contributing editor at Spirituality and Health magazine, and hosts the magazine's podcast, Spirituality and Health with Rabbi Rami. In this episode, Jacob and Rabbi talk about the words of Jesus from the Jewish mystical perspective, what Judaism without tribalism means, and living the golden rule. We're jumping right into this expansive conversation as Jacob asks Rabbi about his experience being a Jewish priest in a very Christian town. We hope you enjoy. So I'm curious what your experience has been like as this rabbi who also is offering an alternative version of Judaism that's informed by all these other contemplative and religious and spiritual traditions. How has that been to find a home in that in that context? Well, you know, I'm a I don't have a synagogue, so I'm basically a freelance, I don't know, intellectual freelance speaker. I don't know what you want to call it. COVID changed everything. No one talks to anybody anymore. But um, <laughs> I used to get invited to a lot of churches. There was a there was a tremendous interest in trying to connect among Christians, trying to connect their tradition back to the Hebrew Bible, get Jesus back into a Jewish context. And even though what I was teaching them was radically different than what they would learn about Jesus in their churches and Sunday school, they were intrigued, if not convinced. You know, they were interested, but they weren't necessarily go, well, okay, now we have to change the way we think about Jesus. I don't think that happened, but they were very open to hearing about the history and who knows what the words of Jesus were. We don't, we don't, we only have the text that was written generations later. But when you read the words of Jesus and you try to imagine him saying those things as a Jew in first century Roman occupied Palestine, and he's speaking to Jews, the meaning of the words change dramatically. I mean, I can give you an example if you, if you, if you want. Yes, please do. You know, so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me, when a Christian hears that, they hear uh, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. But when you hear it from a Jewish perspective, when Jesus says, just starting out, when Jesus says, I am, that's a loaded term in Judaism. That's how God refers to the ultimate Godhead in the book of Exodus. When Moses says, what's your name? God's initial response is, Echia, I am. It's not a good translation. It's because Echia is a verb. So it's I aming or eyeing or mm-hmm. something. But it's what, what God reveals in, in the um, third chapter of uh, Exodus is that there's this infinite subject happening as the infinite universe. And that's what we translate into English as I am. So when Jesus says I am, he's not speaking from the egoic sense of I, Jesus, son of Mary, am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying this I am consciousness. I mean, I'm you know trying to 
bring it into English. But this I am consciousness, this ehie consciousness is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the divine except by experiencing ehie, the I am consciousness. So, you know, no one, if you walk into any church, whether we're talking about Middle Tennessee or probably anywhere, except a few places where, you know, I've, I've been with mystic Christian pastors and priests, but, you know, your average church, you walk into your average mainstream church, no one's ever heard that passage of John rendered in, in this way. So when I go into a church and say, well, let's look at this from the Jewish mystical perspective in which I would say Jesus was steeped, and let's imagine that's what he's saying. It changes everything mm. uh, about that text. And you can go through, you know, so many texts in the in the Gospels and get a very, very different understanding of what Jesus is teaching when you mm. read it from a Jewish perspective. And since he was a Jew, and there was no Christianity then, so since he was a Jew and he was speaking to Jews, it's the only logical way to read the text. That's really interesting. And uh, so I hear the ways in which, and of course, I, I was actually just in um, this kind of interfaith ashram in Wales that I was just spending a week and they have this, they call it Jesus Puja, because originally the Swami who presided there was was Hindu. And so everything is kind of pujas to various Hindu deities, but then they have this uh, service on Sundays called Jesus Puja. And interesting, the way in which you receive you know, Jesus as kind of an energy of a force or a light or whatever, when you worship him in a different context, right? You know, and I was raised in the Christian church. So of course, I know the ways in which, or I understand the ways in which Christians have, you know, misunderstood, misappropriated Jesus in various ways. But do you also, it seemed like you were alluding to at the beginning that Jewish people have done something similar, that there's a misunderstanding as well there within, from a Jewish perspective. Is that one of your opinions? Of of Jesus? Yeah, of Jesus. Yeah, Jewish people have bought into the standard Christian line about who Jesus was. They don't believe it, mm. but they've accepted. Right. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I know. That's the guy that, you know, Christians think is the the Messiah. Well, we reject that whole idea. My sense is that Jews have allowed uh, Christians to appropriate one of the great mystics of the Jewish tradition and turn mm. it into an idol, you know, it's sort, of, sort of harsh maybe, but to 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 really to turn him into an idol if not even a fetish. Mm. Uh, and so profoundly that you can't even mention him in a synagogue without people's hackles, you know, being raised. really because, you know, that Jesus is associated with Christianity. Christianity is associated with anti-Semitism, with pogroms, right. thousands of years with the Holocaust. I mean, you couldn't have you couldn't have the anti-Semitism that we've had over the last two millennia, if not for Christianity. So, and you couldn't have Christianity without Jesus. So Jews make that leap. Well, Jesus equals anti-Semitism, bad, you know. Yeah. But um, when I'm invited to, and it's rare, but when I'm invited to talk about Jesus in synagogues, my approach is to see him as a Jew and to reclaim him as as a Jew. But it's a, it's a tough slog. Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit about the context of your book. Um, I really love the way in which our our conversation has just kind of evolved naturally. I love it when it starts this way, and I don't have to do this kind of 
arbitrary artificial start with your bio and all of that. So I'm speaking with Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who uh, recently wrote a book. Well, he's written many books, um, but the book that we are speaking about today is is called Judaism Without Tribalism. And so I feel like to give the listeners some context to what we're talking about already, let's talk a little bit about the theme of the book, uh, Rabbi, and and perhaps the inspiration behind why you wrote it. So, so let's start off just with the title. So we've got Judaism and tribalism. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you mean by tribalism and then what you mean then with the title of the book. What, what does it mean to say that there is a Judaism that is tribalistic? What is it to be tribalistic? And then what is your kind of vision of a Judaism beyond that? Yeah, so Jews are a tribe. And and I'm very comfortable with that idea. I mean, that's mm-hmm. lots of people are, you know, come from tribes, Native Americans, you know, there's a lot of tribes in Europe, there's tribes in Africa. I mean, people, you know, have have tribal roots. That isn't the problem. The problem is not tribe, but tribalism. When your tribe mm-hmm. decides that it is the best tribe or the only real tribe or, you know, God's favorite tribe, which happens all the time. Or and, and of course you could take the word tribe out and say your race. You know God has a preferred race and God has a preferred ethnicity. But in the context of Judaism, it's one thing to say Jews are a tribe or a tribal people, and it's another thing to say that God chose the Jews from among all the tribes, from among all the peoples of the universe of the world, uh, to be God's special people. That's tribalism. Mm-hmm. And then to say that. Uh, not only are we God's favorite tribe, but that God gave us the deed to the promised land in perpetuity because we're God's favorite people. So we don't really have to deal with anything else. That's our land, whether we've been there or not. And, you know, whatever, you know, all, all the things that go along with, with Zionism, not that I'm opposed to the state of Israel, but when it comes from a tribalistic mentality, you get what you get in the 21st century state of Israel, where you've got at best, Palestinians, Israeli Palestinians as second-class citizens, mm-hmm. not to mention Palestinians who are living in the occupied territories who aren't citizens of anywhere and are really under occupation. I mean, this this thing is is absurd, but it it's a direct result of tribalism or what you might call ethnocentrism. Yeah. It's, it's really no different than uh, white supremacy. Now there's Jewish supremacy or Christian identity and Christian supremacy. I mean, it's, it's just something human beings do. It's not unique to Jews in any way, but it pollutes, it poisons everything you touch. So your Christianity becomes this violent, racist Christianity, not just racist, misogynist, homophobic, transphobic, I mean, all of that. Your Judaism becomes xenophobic and racist, etc. So Judaism without tribalism is Judaism that is freed from the effects of turning your tribe into an idol, worshiping your own you know, ethnicity in a sense as being the best, the only, the divine chosen, all, all of that nonsense. I mean, I don't believe in a God who chooses people. I don't believe in a God who writes books. I don't believe in a God who dabbles in real estate. You know, my my understanding of God is not is completely non-anthropomorphic. So, so the book tries to free Judaism from that kind of madness. 
as it does so, it really reveals an, a very ancient form of Judaism that I call, not this is not what it's called, but that I call one-foot Judaism. It comes from a story that's 2,000 plus years old about a Roman soldier. This is in uh, uh, during the period of Roman occupation. This Roman soldier comes to a rabbi named Shammai. In those days, 2,000 plus years ago, the legal system was ruled by two rabbis, and they, they ruled in pairs. And in the case, uh, the, the last, they're called Zugim pairs. And there are five of these guys over five generations. And, and the final pair is uh, one rabbi called Shammai and one rabbi called Hillel. And so this is a story about the two of them. And they, I don't know if they hated each other personally, but they disagreed about everything. So this is a story about them. So this Roman soldier wants to convert. At least he says he does. And he goes to Shammai, who in those days, rabbis didn't make a living as rabbis. So Shammai was a uh, building uh, in the building trade. And the guy comes to Shammai and he says, look, I want to convert to Judaism on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah, which he meant not only the sacred literature of Judaism, but the entirety of Judaism. But he called it the Torah. He says, I'll convert to Judaism on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. And, and this is absurd. Judaism is a thousand years old by then. And so Shammai is outraged. And according to the story, he grabs like a builder's level, you know, this heavy thing. And he goes chasing after the guy to smack, smash his skull in. And the guy runs away. So the guy runs, runs away from Shammai and he goes to Hillel. And these guys are you know, opposites. So he goes to Hillel and he gives him the same demand. And he says to Hillel, uh, I want to convert to Judaism on the condition that you can teach me the entire Torah, the entirety of Judaism, while I stand on one foot. And so Hillel turns to him and he says, what's hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. That's the entire Torah. Everything else is commentary. Now go study the commentary. Now, it's a story that Jews have been told over and over and over and over again. It's a very popular story because shows, I, when I heard it, and I've heard it dozens and dozens of times throughout my, my education, it's always taught to show how clever Hillel is and how you can get more, you, know, you can do more with honey than with vinegar, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and it's always taught how this is the way to get people to study the commentary. That's the point. Because the commentary is all the legal stuff, all the mm. traditions, all the, the mitzvot, the commandments. So Hillel is really saying, I'm going to get this guy to study everything else, but I'm going to do it in this clever way so I can meet his um, requirement to teach him the entire Torah while he stands on one foot. My reading of the story is very different. I take Hillel at his word. Hillel says the entire Torah is... What is hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. That's the whole thing. Everything else, all of our teachings, all of our texts, all of our traditions are commentary. I mean, he says that. I'm not saying it. Mm -hmm. What's commentary? Commentary is an elucidation of another text. Mm -hmm. So or in this case, commentary is elucidation of the Torah. The Torah is what's hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. 
So he's saying Judaism is a vehicle for deepening your understanding of and broadening your 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 engagement with the golden rule. What's hateful to you? Don't do to anybody else. That is Judaism. That is Torah. So he said it. I heard it. And I think that is really what Judaism without tribalism is. Now, I don't state it that baldly in the book. I go into much more detail. But that's the point, that there is this core Judaism that is ethics. It's not, there's no theology in that statement. There's, you don't have to believe anything. It's, it's all about this uh, just way of engaging with life um, through Hillel's articulation of the golden rule. And that's Judaism. It doesn't talk about tribe. It doesn't talk about anything other than ethics. And to me, that to me is the Judaism that I want to live. Now, yeah. let, me, let me just add one other thing. You can be as orthodox a Jew or as secular a Jew as you want and still live Hillel's Judaism. So, for example, I keep, I grew up in an orthodox home. I keep kosher. My standard for kosher growing up was the orthodox rabbinic standard. My parents didn't think about it. They had a rule. This is what you do. You buy products with certain markings on the package. You go to a kosher butcher. The meat came with certain sanctions. So you knew it was, it was kosher meat and all that stuff. They didn't think about it. They just bought stuff that some rabbi had said was kosher. And that was that. But if you're living by Hillel's one foot Judaism and you're principle is what's hateful to you don't do to anyone else you have to think well wait do i want to be you know raised in a, in a pen in order to be devoured by some other creature you know no so when i think about keeping kosher kosher in you know having a kosher diet in the context of hillel i think i i should be a vegetarian at least maybe a vegan so you start to rethink traditions in the context of ethics. So for mm. me personally, that means, uh, you know, I don't eat meat. Now, somebody else might say, no, you know what? I'm, I'm going to eat chicken, but I'm only going to eat free range chicken. I'm, I'm not, this is not a, a legalistic form of Judaism. It's a principled form of Judaism. So you apply the principle in your own way. Uh, so you, people will be living their Judaism differently, but they'll all be living it based on the shared principle. So you can be as orthodox as you want, as long as what you're doing is designed or is geared to um, living the golden rule in, mm -hmm. in the context of diet, in the context of business, whatever, you know, whatever you're, you're talking about. Or you can be as secular because you're, you're, you know, you're not following any rules from the rabbinic tradition, but you're still living the golden rule. So I think that was the genius of of Hillel 2,000 years ago. I think we ignored him for 2,000 years. And what I'm trying to do in, with Judaism without tribalism, again, not explicitly, here I'm making it explicit, is to, is to bring that to the fore. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It, it permits, it seems to permit a lot of flexibility, like you're saying, like there's a whole range of expressions of Judaism, um, as long as they, you know, align with that fundamental tenet. Well, let me ask you a follow-up follow question, though, on that, because, you know, if kind of the ultimate and um, 
foundational definition of Judaism is just to follow the golden rule, golden rule, then, then what's to say, you know, I, I, I believe in the golden rule. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I want to observe, um, not do to anybody else what I find hateful to myself. So what then makes someone Jewish? Could it, would then I just say, could I then say based on that, that I'm also Jewish, <laughs> you know, what then, and I'm asking that also because it's, it touches on something that you talk about in your book, which is about kind of the way in which Judaism often gets split, explained in a cultural way. And a lot of, I have a lot of Jewish friends and a lot of them are, um, they're not practicing Jews beyond practicing kind of the cultural hallmarks. They, you know, they observe certain um, holidays with their family. Um, but other than that, it's, you know, they're not going around talking about um, their, you know, faith or t uh, their faith in God in any particular way, which I I've always found interesting as a distinction between those who practice Christianity, where there seems to be more like, well, if you're not actually believing the things, you know, in this kind of more, I guess, hardened way, for lack of a better word, then you're not really Christian, you know, and then people will leave the church based on that. So, so what's the difference there? And what kind of what becomes the definition of why, how someone is Jewish, um, you know, based on what I've essentially said? Yeah. So, so you really raised two questions. One about the difference between Judaism and Christianity around the issue of belief, and we can hold that for yeah. one second. And the other is, in a sense, who's a Jew in the context of Judaism without tribalism or this one foot Judaism? So in the Judaism Without Tribalism book, I make the, the pretty audacious statement that a Jew is someone who calls themselves a Jew. You know, I don't I don't care about bloodline. I don't care about, you know, I mean, in, in Israel today, they argue and they're arguing now they're having a whole because of the government that's being that will be installed shortly is so right wing religiously. And they're going to have a whole debate about you know who's a Jew and who isn't a Jew. And it's all based on blood and DNA and all this. To me, that's just mm. a complete waste of time. I mean, that's tribalism. Yeah. So in my book, just to be, you know cantankerous i guess you know just <laughs> if you know if you're you're if you call yourself a jew you're a jew what do i care you know it's not like all of a sudden the pope is gonna say hey i'm a jew <laughs> and all catholics are jews i mean it's not you know what's the big deal it's not gonna happen yeah <clears throat> so but in the context of of um one for judaism i would add uh, an additional element i would say a jew is someone who let's say a serious jew uh, is someone who calls themselves a Jew and who does their best to live according to the golden rule, as Hillel articulates, mm -hmm. using, and then what would be the distinction between just another person living the golden rule, using the Jewish um, norms, or let's not say norms, let's just say cultural traditions, texts, teachings, to do so. So anyone can say, well, I'm going to be a vegetarian, that's the right thing to do. And what does that make me Jewish? And no, of course not. But if you said, I'm going to be a vegetarian in uh, as my way of living Hillel's, what's hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. And then mm. you can, and then if you, if in the book, um, Judaism Without Tribalism, I talk about some of the principles around how you treat animals. And so you reference those things. And then, well, now you're really in a Jewish context. So mm -hmm. it's clearly you're not talking about the Tibetan rules about um, rescuing animals and ransoming animals. No, you're talking about the Jewish way of dealing with animals. So a lot of it is is just your your cultural reference points that would make it Jewish as opposed to something else. Yeah. Um, but I'm very loose about that. I mean, that's just not something that 
the who, is, who is a who is a Jew issue is like it's like a distraction, you know. Yeah. First, yeah. everyone should live according to the golden rule, and then if we want to fight about who's a Jew, I, I don't think anyone would. Not if they're still living according to the golden rule. I mean, yeah. Who cares? But you know that people like people like to do that. The other question about belief. Uh, let, let me say a couple of things. Number one, I rarely, or let me put it even more strongly, I never consciously use the word belief for myself. I, I slip into it because it's just part of the language. But for me, the word belief refers to something that I affirm is true without any evidence whatsoever. Right. So my sister is visiting um, for a few days. I don't say... Uh, and I wouldn't say to you, Jacob, I believe my sister is in town. <laughs> I picked her up at the airport. I know she's in town, right? So that, to say I believe is ridiculous because I know. But I could say to you, you know, Jacob, I believe my brother-in-law is at work because he's not here. You know, he's back in Massachusetts. I believe he's at work, but I don't know that. I just believe that. So <clears throat> when it comes to things religious and God-oriented and all of that, I try to avoid the word belief and only talk about what I know or what I think I know through my experience. Judaism is not based on belief. Judaism is based on behavior. Christianity is based on belief. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whoever so believe, whosoever believes in me will not, you know, who, who will gain eternal life, you know, that kind of thing in the gospel according to john if you don't believe in jesus and you're a christian if the christian if christianity is your chosen path and you don't believe in jesus as your lord and savior you're in the wrong path right because you're not going to get the, the reward right every religion holds out some it's got a lot of stick but it's got a big carrot at the end you know so eternal life or something rebirth in a better, you know, a, a better rebirth or, you know, in a, in a different realm or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So Christianity is eternal life in the, you know, in a better, in heaven or a better world. Uh, if you believe properly, of course, different branches of Christianity will argue over what's the proper belief and they can mm -hmm. fight it out, you know, definitely. But that's just, that's, that's marketing, right? I mean, that's like, Pepsi and Coke going at it, you know, which is the better brown fizzy water, you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's the same thing. Um, yeah. The only difference is you can go to the supermarket and buy a can of Coke and buy a can of Pepsi and see which one tastes better to you. Whereas you can't tell uh, if Catholics go to heaven or not. Like Baptists say, only they go to heaven, Southern Baptists. So the only way you know is to become a Southern Baptist and die and then see if you're the only ones there I mean, there's just no way to know it's a pretty so, intense experiment yeah well it's 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 really putting all your you know exit you one know, I'm, I'm all in putting all your, your chips on the table i'm all in on this one and if you're wrong well you're wrong whoops <laughs> so you know any, anyway so so belief is major in christianity but not not in judaism judaism it's all about behavior mm. That's interesting because uh, it sort of reminds me uh, oftentimes um, people refer to paths of Hinduism as an orthopraxy um, rather than orthodoxy, which it, so it reminds me of that, um, which is quite interesting, the parallels. Um, and so, I, you know, even though there 
as you're saying, belief is not central. There are still kind of some theological categories that you explore in the book. So I wanted to talk about a couple of those um, for a moment. Um, one, just based on what you were describing about knowing versus believing, you bring up this concept of, of da'at. I, I don't know if I'm yeah, pronouncing that correctly. Da, right. Da'at, uh, which means knowledge. You're, you said in the book that there is no word for religion in Judaism and that the, the, there's this word da'at, which means knowledge, and therefore a dati is one who knows, which I just thought was interesting as um, based on here what we were talking about. Um, but there is a concept of God, right? And 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 you go into um, uh, an explanation of this in the book, and you you return to it several times. This concept of God as Yahweh, or I don't know if that's the pronunciation Y H V H, um, that you define as the happening, happening as all happening, which I think is so beautiful and interesting. So, can you talk a little bit about that and and how we can kind of wrap our heads around that as a as a way of knowing rather than something that we're believing in? Yeah. So go back to to Exodus chapter three, where Moses meets God at the burning bush. I mean, again, these are stories to be not. You know, to be taken literally. So uh, Moses meets God at the burning bush and God says, go to Egypt and free all the people. And Moses says, yeah, who's going to listen to me? I know, you know, people are going to say, well, who sent you? And I say, well, I was talking to a bush and I heard this voice. So they, they're they going to want something better. So what's your name? Let me tell, tell me your name. And so the first name that God reveals in the story is this Ehyeh, E-H-Y-E-H, which is the first person singular of the uh, Hebrew verb to be. So it's I am or I-ing or I aming. Then as soon as God reveals the name, this is not a good translation, but this is sort of really how it should be understood. As soon as God says that, God says, wait, 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 wait. Nobody is going to understand that. The I, you know, who am I? I'm the I-ing that's happening, you know, the I-ing of the universe. I mean, it's pure... um, you know, if you're a Hindu, you could understand it. You know, it's yeah. the, it's the pure subject, the the, yeah. the un the unseen seer, the right, the the mm-hmm. eye that yeah. cannot be the subject that cannot be made into an object. Yeah, but you know, normal Middle Easterners are not going to go. What the hell is he talking about? So God says in the story again. I'm paraphrasing. Wait, wait, wait. No one's going to understand that. So tell them, tell them this. And then God reveals the second name, which scholars pronounce as Yahweh, but literally it's four consonants uh, without any vowels. So you can't pronounce you not only traditionally, you're not supposed to pronounce that. Right. In Judaism, you literally cannot. It's Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just literally unpronounceable so i'll go into what it means in a second but what i love about that is it not that the person who wrote this story read chinese but it fits perfectly with the opening lines of the Tao de jing where lao tzu writes the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. you know the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. and here you get a god who cannot be named or even First opening line of the Gospel of uh, John: "In the beginning was the Word." Uh, what was yeah. the Word? You know, it's like it, it doesn't tell you what the Word was. You know, I know there there are um, 
Advaita commentaries on John that say the word was om, or, you know, but he doesn't say. It's because in the beginning, and of course, word is an English translation. The, the Greek was logos. And so mm. in the beginning was logos, but we still don't even know what that was. And that was, yeah. it says logos was with God, logos was God. And, you know, and then it becomes incarnate, you know, as as Jesus, though I would say incarnate as as all reality. So there, there's other ways of getting around this naming of God. But in Exodus 3, so God, the second name is this Y-H-V-H, yud Hey vav Hey in Hebrew, which is the same verb as Ehia, but now it's third person. Mm. So the, the idea is whoever wrote the story is saying, ah, no one's going to understand the unseen seer that is the pure eye behind the egoic eye of everyone. Uh, so let me try the third person. And so I'm going to say, God is uh, not a being, but being itself. Mm. Still very hard to, to grasp. So, you know, if you were going to ask, uh, does God, in the Jewish context of Exodus 3, if you're going to ask, does God exist? You'd say, no, God is existence or God is existing the, the universe existing. So I came up with the happening happening is all happening. So that's my poetic flourish on the, the un, not just the unpronounceable, but even the untranslatable YHVH or Yodhe Vavhe. But it's, it's a brilliant play on, on the language. Yeah. But then you have to say something. So you can't say Yahweh. I mean, in the university, they say Yahweh. We, when I was teaching, we say Yahweh. But in Judaism, you need a euphemism. So the, there were a bunch of them. Uh, the one that becomes common in our liturgy is Adonai. And the rabbis came up with that one long, 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 long time ago, thousands of years. And it means Lord. And that's why you end up in English translations, and the Lord God said, blah, blah, blah. But Lord is masculine, or Adonai, right? It, it's it's masculine, it's hierarchical, it's, whereas uh, being, existing, is, it's got no real, there's no hierarchy there, it's, it's, it seems all-inclusive. It, by, by using Adonai, you really put a masculine, patriarchal stamp on all of it, whereas the original Hebrew, I think, frees you from that. Mm. So there are other euphemisms the ancient rabbis came up with uh and and one that i like um and it's used in the passover haggadah the passover liturgy they use the term ha makom the place but it means not a, a place but the place in which the universe happens so god is like this field and the universe you know or, or you might think of god as this infinite ocean and then the universe is the happening of the waves happening in, in the ocean, something like that. So uh, it, it's all very, very difficult, but it's to, to put into English. Um, it's but beautiful, though. I, I absolutely love this idea. And it makes it 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 offers kind of um, a vision of the divine in Judaism as, you know, there's so many ways as you're speaking that I can see these other connections with other essentially mystical understandings of various traditions, because of course we have, 
exoteric and more sort of rigid, institutionalized, tribalistic ideas of of different traditions. But it seems like when you when you read different religious traditions in this way, you know, oftentimes there is this kind of this teaching um, that you know other people have called the perennial philosophy or uh, the perennial wisdom. Um, so I'm curious though about kind of even the category or then the utility as you see it of religion. Like if, if God is simply existence and existence in some sense is simply, you know, another word for what's happening, or you could, and some might say, well, then why isn't nature a perfectly legitimate category? And then what is the role for religion then if ultimately God is just everything that is? Yes. So if we're going to let's make a distinction between religion and mysticism, Mm -hmm. Um, though, I don't really love the word mysticism, but religion. Why not? I'm curious. Because it it has the there must be a better word in a different language, but it's got the word mystery in it. And there's really not a mystery here. I mean, it's reality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if God is the happening, happening is all happening, then you and I are the happening of God. There's no mystery there. The the coffee mug that I'm sipping tea from is the divine happening as coffee mug. You know, everything is a vehicle or expression or manifesting of the divine. Uh, so I don't, it's nothing mysterious. Nothing is hidden. We, we make it mysterious. We make, we complicate it uh, in order to say, well, it's too hard. I can't, I can't get this, you know, but it really is very simple. It's all God. In Yiddish, there's a phrase, Alice is God, everything is God. So it's all God. Tatvam Asi. You know, I'm talking to a Sanskrit scholar, so my accent, my, my pronunciation may be terrible. That's great. But you get you get the idea. It's, it's you're it. You know, you, everything is is uh, Brahman. Is that, yeah. So, so it's not really a mystery, but we use the word mysticism anyway, and we'll define mysticism as a direct um encounter with reality as it is, as opposed to being filtered through any theology or text or anything like that. So the religion in the mainstream uh, or conventional religion is really, in my mind, and this sounds terrible, but in my mind, it's all about power and control. Mm. And that's the purpose of religion. It's a societal control mechanism. I mean, it's never about empowering people to realize their own divinity. It's it's always about getting people to line up behind whatever God they're selling uh, and the powers that are selling it to you. You know, there's a Zen phrase, selling water by the river. You know, it's like, oh, don't go to the don't go to the river here. Buy buy my water. You know, it's even though you've got clean water, it's right there for free. Or like when Gandhi walks to the you know to do the salt march because the British are taxing salt and goes, look, I can get salt for free right here. So it, it breaks the back of the of the power structure. That's what mysticism does, I think. But religion is is really about power and control, <clears throat> and it's mostly patriarchal power and control. So I'm not opposed to religion. I think people invent religions. That's what we do. It's part of our, you know, psyche. But at our best, we go beyond the religious to the mystical. Or again, if we come up with a better word, uh, and the mystical realizes that there is a truth that that either transcends or or whatever the word might be, 
all the all the religious forms. I mean, there's no such thing. I mean, I'm I'm more than comfortable saying that um, Kali and Krishna and Durga and um, I don't think Brahman has a form, but Shiva and you know, take all all the gods you want from Hinduism and then throw in. Uh, Allah and Yudhe Vavhe and, and any of the deities from any of the traditions, Tibetan, Chinese, whatever you want to do, that they're all manifestings of the, the formless. Mm-hmm. I'm happy with that. That's that's not a problem for me. But mysticism goes beyond the forms. So, yeah. you know, in Hinduism, <clears throat> one of the brilliant insights of Hinduism, and I don't know if it's unique to Hinduism, and Hinduism isn't a thing, it's just something the Brits invented because Indian religions are so complicated, and so numerous, but in the context of of that framework, you know, uh, Hinduism talks about, and you can help me with the pronunciation, uh, Nirguna Brahman and uh, Saguna Brahman, right? Yes, that's right. Say that better than I did. Nir, no, Nirguna and Saguna is good. Yeah. Okay, so God, uh, Brahman without form, and, and Brahman with form, mm-hmm. uh, and I used to be anti-form. You know, I said, ah, get rid of all the forms. Mm-hmm. But I, I've matured a little bit. And I said, no, if God is everything, then God also includes these forms. And if you're drawn ultimately to the formless, but if your path to the formless is through Krishna, then Hare Krishna, go through Krishna. <laughs> yeah. if, if, your, if your path to the formless is through Christ, then um, go through Christ. If it's through Mary, go through Mary. If it's through Kali, go through Kali. If it's through the the Jewish path, go through that. It doesn't really, I, I, I know that it doesn't matter. If you go deep enough, if you stay on the surface and you say it's Jesus and everyone else is going to hell, then you're not going, you, you, you've missed the whole point. But if you go deep enough, you're going to find that your um, your personal deity, your Ishwara, I guess you might call mm-hmm. it in Hinduism, mm-hmm. your, your personal deity is going to lead you to the impersonal divine reality that is manifesting as everything. And that's what the mystics show you. And I think my experience has been when I've met someone that I would consider an authentic mystic, whether they're Jewish, Catholic, um, I'm just trying to think of the people I know, Episcopalian, Hindu. I mean, I've studied with different mystics from different traditions. They all just cut through the cut through the forms. Mm. Um, they may have been raised in a tradition with specific form, but they just cut through the form to the formless. And when they do that, they are, you know, they all meet together. You know, they, they I, I, let me let me try to make this a little bit more concrete. In 1984, Father Thomas Keating, and I don't know how many of our listeners are aware of him, but if not, you should check him out. He's deceased, but his books are great. He's one of the great mystics of 20, 21st century. Mm. Uh, Catholic, what was his name again? Father Keating, K-E-A-T-I-N-G. Father okay. Thomas Keating and uh, Father Basil Pennington together created the centering prayer movement within Christianity. They, they were, mm. they were um, I think I got this right, Benedictine monks, and they took uh, practice from their monastic lives and brought it to the secular Christian world. Uh, anyway, 
1994, Father Thomas created something. It was an experiment. Uh, it, it went on for 35 years, so it had a long shelf life. He called it, or it became called, uh, known as the Snowmass Group, after where mm. his monastery was located in Snowmass, Colorado. And once a year, uh, at least in the beginning, I think the numbers grew, but in the beginning, he invited 12 contemplatives, that's what he called them, 12 contemplatives, one from uh, each of 12 different traditions, to live with him in the monastery for, I think it was 10 days. My memory isn't so great, but I think it was 10 days. Mm-hmm. And we would follow the life of the monks. So when they prayed you know, in the mornings early and they did the, the Psalms, we would go and we would do whatever the monks did, we would do, except when the monks went to work, we would stay together in our separate uh, study area and we would meditate together and we would talk together and the idea was to see what would happen when you had 12 contemplatives from 12 different traditions um in a room together you know would it, would it end up as you know interreligious warfare or something else and what became clear i think to everybody within just a couple of days if that was that while each of us had our own method of moving to the formless, when we shared our experience, and that's a problematic word experience, because experience implies there's someone there to experience it. And when you're having, when you're in that state, there's no you there, but you have to deal with the limits of language. So when when I'm in that state of the formless, Rami's not even there. I only know I was there or imagine I was there when I'm not there. I go, oh, I must have been in that state. So take it with a grain of salt. But when we talked about where we weren't, because we were all wiped out, in, in Judaism, it's called kalti nafshi, the uh, extermination of your sense of self. Uh, so when we talked about that after our meditation sessions, everyone was sharing the same experience. Some people got there through a mantra. Some people got there through breathing. Some people got there in different ways. But the experience, whatever, however you want to, whatever word you can use, and that's a bad one, but whatever it is, the experience was the same and the impact was the same. Everybody came back more open, more loving, more fearless than they went into it. One of my teachers said, when you start, when you go into your meditation practice, you go into it like a slice of Velveeta cheese. Now, not everyone's <laughs> going to know what Velveeta cheese is, but it's a kind of, I don't fake even know. Cheese. What? Is it <laughs> fake, fake cheese? I, I, I don't even, I don't know if it's real cheese or not, but it's very thick, very waxy orange cheese. So you go in as a slab of Velveeta cheese, but when you come out, you come out like Swiss cheese. There's still a frame, but it's full of holes. And that's what they were describing. And um, that's what mysticism does. It, it, it slowly opens you up to the reality that you truly are. And that's what mysticism could do. Religion can't do that. Religion is Velveeta. <laughs> Religion mm-hmm. is, nope, this is our slab and we will fight to the death to defend it. Yeah. Which is absurd to me. Yeah. So um, I'm curious then, you know, with this talk of mysticism, those who are familiar with, you know, Jewish mysticism know of Kabbalah. And you don't mention Kabbalah in your book. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious what your relationship with Kabbalah is and how you see kind of your work and what you're trying to describe or articulate 
as relating to that or being in contradistinction to that, if if at all. Yeah, I don't talk about Kabbalah because I'm not smart enough. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> complex system. I don't believe that. You know, you, to really be a Kabbalist, I mean, I know lots of people say, oh, I'm into Kabbalah. They don't know Hebrew. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the Talmud. They can't read the Zohar, which is an Aramaic. They 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 just took a class or they read right. some English book. And, you know, I don't mean to sound, well, I am sounding critical. I am critical. But the, the idea this is that the you place. Can, yeah, right. The idea that you can be a Kabbalist because you read a book in English about Kabbalah is absurd. Mm. I'm not a Kabbalist. Uh, I've read, I can't say I've read the entirety of the Zohar, but, you know, I've read some of the Zohar. I've looked at a lot of these different things. It's very complicated and needlessly complicated. The whole point mm. is, Alice is God. Everything is God. If you get that, if you can awake to the divinity of everything, you don't need to spend any time on the tree of life and all the <laughs> intricacies of the, the, the ten sphere road and how they relate to the chakras and how they relate to the, the meridian points in Chinese medicine. All that is really interesting. And I have friends who are really into it and I'm never bored when they talk to me about it. But it has nothing to do with the only thing I really care about and that's awakening to the divine um, mm. in with and as all reality. So I'm not a Kabbalist. Um, mm. I'm, I don't know what I am. <laughs> No, but I think that's a really that's that's a really beautiful. It's almost like a bhakta response, you know. That's that that really at the end of the day, that devotion to this to this divine reality is really all you need. Uh, and and but I also like that there seems like there's a slightly more critical point where you're kind of highlighting the fact that much of what circulates as Kabbalah is essentially a watered down popularized form. And actually, if you really were to be a Kabbalist, you would have to become a scholar in some sense. Is that kind of what you're saying? Kabbalah is, a, yeah, Kabbalah is really, I mean, it even says of itself, you have to be 40 years old, married, <laughs> uh, before you can even get into this stuff. And oh, crap. So I have one year left. <laughs> well, happy birthday when it comes. And, and it says you have to be married. And the reason is because there is a lot of tantric energy that's released in this thing. And you need a partner for sex. Mm -hmm. You need a sex partner because it's mm -hmm. very, very sexual. Uh, so anyway, I mean, th there's a lot of beauty in Kabbalah. I'm not denying that. But you can't get Kabbalah from a seminar. Just like you can't go for a weekend yoga retreat and come back and say, I'm a yogi now. Mm. It, it doesn't work. You know, yeah. I mean, someone, someone studies Hatha yoga and says, I'm a yogi, and never does the, um, you know, the, the ethical principles and never gets into all the, the stuff that Patanjali talks about. I mean, it's not yoga. It's, it, it's American marketing of... Yeah, it's fitness know, and stress fitness, relief. Right, fitness yeah. and stress relief. So we're getting sort of towards the end of our time, but I would be, it would be negligent of me not to talk about a couple more things that I found really interesting. And one of them is... Um, this idea of a creative reading and reinterpreting, or you put it as a turning. And um, you said that you write that this sage Ben Bagbag, which is a fantastic name, <laughs> said of the Torah, <laughs> turn her and turn her for everything is in her, which I think is beautiful. And that also ties to this other observation that you make 
that actually goes back to something we already talked about with Yahweh's that that there are words or rather the I don't know if I'm incorrect here that it's the either the entire uh, Talmud or something or the Torah sorry the entire Torah that that has um, that is that lacks vowels and therefore is therefore lends itself sort of foundationally to creative interpretation, which I just found really interesting. And also another thing that kind of resonates or rather is um, uh, kind of mirroring stuff that you find also in Hinduism and Indian in Indian religions. But anyway, yeah, this idea of re- reinterpretation and turning. Yeah. So, so a couple, couple of things quick. And then, because I love this thing about the vowels and I'll give you an example. That's I'm sure in the book. Um, so Ben Badbag is the tradition says it's a pseudonym for that Roman soldier that went to Hillel and, and got converted when Hillel said the entire Torah is, you know, what's hateful to you, don't do it anyone else. He converts. But conversion in first century Roman occupied Palestine was a capital offense. So he uh, got a pseudonym. He figured nobody would know who he was if he walked around calling himself Ben Bagbag. <laughs> Bag Bag. It's such a it's such an absurdist name. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, you know, turning Torah. So the idea with turning Torah is, and and we won't go into all the ways you can turn it, but Torah, it was considered and is, I shouldn't say was, is considered a fluid document. You can you can do things to the Hebrew Bible legitimately, according to the rabbis, that you can't do with an English text. Mm-hmm. You can read the words backwards. You can read the words nu- numerologically, mm-hmm. because in Hebrew, there's no, uh, there's no numbers. There's no, you know, there's no equivalent of Arabic numerals or, or Roman numerals. So every letter of the alphabet does double duty as a letter and as a number. So every word in the Bible is actually a numerical sum so the the rabbi said if you have words or phrases you can add up the numbers and then you can find other words or phrases if they have the same number if you know add up and they they, they come to the same numerical total they're interchangeable or they're connected some way and you can make all kinds of leaps of imaginative fancy so you're constantly turning it over in your head to see what else comes up and like you said in the text it's in the in the hand printed torah scroll not in a you know you go to the bookstore and you buy buy a hebrew bible the vowels are printed in there and that comes from tradition but if you go and look at a scroll in uh, a synagogue there are no vowels and the um the ancient torah had no vowels and so you just had to you were taught how to breathe the text because that's what it was that if you took if you took the the a page of Torah original without vowels and stuck it in a character um, recognition program, optical recognition program, it would just be gibberish. So the reader is absolutely essential to the text. You breathe literally, because that's what vowels are, breath. You breathe life and meaning into the text by reading it. Mm. So the rabbi said, because the vowels aren't there, if you can breathe a different set of vowels in and find meaning in that, be our guest. Because mm-hmm. who's to say that's not what was meant? So one of my favorite examples is from uh, this 18th century, 19th century rabbi 
uh, Nachman of Braslov, who is the great grandson of the founder of Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov. And Nachman is looking at the passage in Leviticus that says, 1918, that says, love your neighbor as yourself. So in Hebrew, it says, ve'ahavta echa kamocha. Ve'ahavta, you shall love, echa your neighbor, kamocha as yourself. And he says, you know, the, the word neighbor, re, is two letters. It's resh and ayin. And he says, that's how you spell evil. You don't pronounce it re, you pronounce it ra, but it, it's the same word if I'm writing it out. So I could read the same verse, be'ahavta, and you shall love echa your evil, kamocha, mm. as yourself. And then he talks about what does it mean to love your evil? Now, this is before Jung, but it's the same idea. He says, you have to totally. own your, your own dark side. You have mm -hmm. to own everything you project onto your neighbor that you don't like comes from you. Mm -hmm. So you have to own your own negativity, your own anger, your own shadow, what's what we call it today. And until you, do, until you do own your own shadow, you can't begin to love your neighbor because you'll just project your negativity on your neighbor and you'll hate your neighbor. So it's a brilliant psychological insight. And he gets it by turning the Torah and changing the vowels. And in Judaism, that is totally legitimate, which if you love text, makes studying the text in a traditional Jewish way, infinitely fascinating. I mean, that's yeah. my favorite thing to do. I mean, you can't see from the way the camera is situated, but in front of me are volumes and volumes and volumes of, of Torah turnings by different mm. rabbis over the last, um, I don't know, thousand plus years. And um, they're just, it's just fascinating. Someone says, I mean, some of them are such a stretch that I go, what? How did they get that? And even when I know, <laughs> even when I know how they got it, because someone, because there's commentaries on the commentaries, I go, Okay, I see what they did, but I they must have been smoking something because I don't really get the leap. But um, that's Judaism at its most exciting for me. Yeah, yeah, I can get into that as a person who also loves text, and also I, you know, I totally resonate with this idea of of a text being, or especially certain texts, including obviously the Torah, being a kind of living document that yeah. you breathe life into. Um, and really, you know, to varying degrees, every, everyone has an experience like that, just of, of any text in general, like you read a book when you're 18, and then you read it when you're 38, and you, you get different meaning, like different things stand out. And it happens even to such a more profound degree when it's a, a sacred text, like the Torah. Yeah, I, I was speaking to somebody just a couple of days ago about um, Parahamsa, uh, Paramahamsa Yogananda, an autobiography mm -hmm. of a yogi. And they said, you know, when did you, have you read it? And I said, well, I've read it twice, once when I was a kid and once much more recently. And I guess once, because I'm in my 70s, I think I read it in my 70s again. And he said, well, what was the difference? And I said, well, when I read it as a kid, I was so taken with the cities, you know, the, the magic and, you know, the guru that he met that could make rose petals appear in the palm of his hand. And I said, I said, that was so cool. I said, today I read that and go, you know, I could just go to the florist. If I need roses, I'm not going to go to India and find a guru who can make them appear. I'll go to the florist. I'll buy roses. What appeals to me now is the, the transformation of consciousness that, uh, yeah. 
that uh, Paramahansa Yogananda goes through. Yeah. So yeah, you you read texts in different ways. Mm. Well, this has been a delightful conversation, and I'm really happy that we ended on this note of you know affirming or loving your evil or loving your shadow because it does seem like such an important teaching, especially right now when the elevation and escalation of of hatred and anger seems to be so potent. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to sort of the situation you're in, we're in, <laughs> and uh, and maybe to that, like, you know, what do you see, especially with kind of the resurgence of, I, I see there being a resurgence of, of mystical teachings, and certainly on one level, there's a transformation of consciousness that's happening, but on another level, there seems like all these shadows coming up and, and bubbling up to the surface. Um, so, you know, on that topic how do you see this this book and kind of the project that we could say it's a part of um as being why do you see that as being so kind of important at this time so let's be clear about what the time is i mm -hmm. think we're in the kali yuga you know mm -hmm. I, I think i think things are falling apart i think they're going to get worse environmentally politically militarily i think the, the covid pandemic was just the tip of the iceberg of what's coming um mm. at the same time just today as we're recording this uh the news reports that maybe fusion is now a possibility and we'll have i know wow clean energy if you know th they were saying i i have a i have two grandsons one is just three months old he might mm. benefit from it yeah. uh, if if the world still exists for humans you know then so so it's a mix, mixture of of very dire times so so we're in this terrible time this great dark night of of the human soul and human civilization um so so there are books and i'm not a big fan of books saving the world i don't think this you know i didn't write a book to save the planet but there are books there are ideas out there that you know that you know, I was pushing beyond tribalism. I think tribalism is one of the poisons that is feed in the dark yeah. night. But I think more importantly is we need practice. I think that that there are more and more people who recognize that we're in this desperate state and they need or they're looking for a simple practice, nothing complicated like Kabbalah, nothing where you're going to have to go and take a seminar for, you know, of, you know, weeks and weeks to study something, to master it, become a teacher, something very simple, simple that you can do that can transform your consciousness so that when you engage with another being, human and otherwise, you can do it in a way that even though there's a collapse happening, we can collapse consciously and compassionately together. Mm -hmm. And then move through this to, to something else and every tradition has these I, and i think they're going to be i think mantra uh it, to use the sanskrit term or haga is the hebrew term uh is is the practice because you can't really do mantra wrong you can just not do it so the, the one of the practices that i teach uh I, I, there's a couple but let me i'll just give the one that's it's only one word so I'll just use it. It's the chanting. Well, no, let me give you the other one. It's a little more complicated, but no one's going to do it anyway from just listening to an audio. <laughs> so let me just give it to you because it's more apropos to what we're talking about. It's, um, 
the recitation, I think it's Psalm 16, but the first verse could be wrong, but it's Shiviti, and then it's got the unpronounceable name of God. So I use, in this case, uh, Shekhinah, which is the feminine a feminine uh, manifestation of the divine. So it says, Shiviti, Shiviti Shekhinah Lenegdi Tamid, which means I see the divine presence before me always. And the practice is when you see another being, now, I focus mostly on humans when I'm doing this practice. When I'm walking, and I do a lot of walking, when I see another human being as I'm moving toward them, I recite in my head, Shiviti Shekhina Lenegdi Tamid, so that when I'm close enough to actually encounter them, I'm encountering the divine. I do that with animals. I do that with people. I do that with, with trees. But mostly at this time, um, it's essential that we do it with people. So that we don't, uh, oh, here comes a Republican, or here comes a Democrat, or because you know someone's wearing a MAGA hat, you know, or, oh my God, here comes a MAGA person. I know that they're racist and homophobes and, and misogynist and anti-Semitic, and you know, I don't know any of those things. They're wearing a MAGA hat. That's all I know. But I'm reading all this stuff into it, and so I say to, as I you know move closer, I recite you know Shiviti Shekhina Lenegdi Tamid, and. I free myself from those assumptions mm. so that mm. when I meet them, I can meet them divine being to divine being, you know, mm. manifestation of the divine to manifestation of the divine. And, and hopefully um, make that encounter a holy one rather than mm. a harrowing one. I love that. It's like a practice of invoking the divine as you're coming into contact with. It's, it's namaste. It's the same idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah that's beautiful you started earlier <laughs> you started when i'm i'm far enough away so that maybe it'll have some impact when i get close <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to start practicing i don't think i'll remember it but i'm going to try to remember that practice in some way that's beautiful i love that so um uh rabbi rami this has been such a pleasure i have been speaking with uh, Rabbi Rami, who is the author of many books, one of which is Judaism Without Tribalism. And you, is that now published? Can you get it yet? Oh, yes, it's out. You can okay. get it in your local so bookstore, amazon.com. All right. So go get it, everyone who's listening. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners, Rabbi, before we end our conversation for today? I'm not sure when you're going to post this, but I want to wish everyone um, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year, Happy Kwanzaa. Uh, we just missed Buddha's Enlightenment Day. <laughs> that was mm -hmm. a couple of days ago. Zoroastrian has a holiday. So, you know, the, so all, I think there's 19 holidays in, in December, whichever mm -hmm. ones you celebrate, um, may they be meaningful to you. Yes, thank you so much for uh, listening, all of you out there. And again, if you would like to get your hands on Rabbi's book, you can find it on Amazon and at your local bookstore. Thank you, Rabbi Rami. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Jacob. It really was delightful talking with you.